thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. There's nothing like kids smiling and laughing and playing because if they're having fun, we can do a lot with them. Educate them, we're going to inspire them, we're going to show them things that they weren't quite aware of. There's a big sign in the front of the Air and Space Museum that says, enter here for fun. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. This is episode 166, and today we are discussing the San Diego Air and Space Museum and whether aviation museums as a thing are kind of dying off or if there is a place for them. We will get to that in a moment, but before we do, like we talked about on episode 165, we're bringing back a little bit of the announcements and listener questions in that part of the show. If you are listening to this on release day, then I am just wrapping up, my wife and I, our week-long vacation in the uh, British Overseas Territory, we'll call it, southeast of the Bahamas. We are spending our silver anniversary out there. We're just about to leave. But as you listen to this, we'll just be getting back. So yeah, 25 years. Wow, went quickly. Thank you, honey. Love you. In case you're listening, I don't think she does. Anyway, regarding, I think it was our discussion with Ken Katz on pilot and backseater pairing, I did receive an email from Charles Burleman, who said, having spent many years doing post-flight maintenance debriefs of A6 intruder crews, I can say that it was common practice to establish permanent crews as the squadrons get ready for deployment. As the crewing experience developed, the two bodies became two well-aligned minds. It was not uncommon to see a pilot and bombardier navigator in which one would start a comment only to be finished by the other. They tended to pull liberty together and their families became close. As a maintenance guy, I noticed the well-aligned crews had better luck when dealing with systems problems. Well, that's pretty cool, Charles. Thank you for that. He's dating himself a little bit. The A6 has been retired for a while, but good to know that I think we hit close to the mark on pairing and it sounds like that's what they did back in the intruder days. Good stuff. Now, we just have one quick question from Cedric, who says, as you know, You and your guests delve into interesting facts about military aviation. The enemy is also listening. And I feel they could easily put two and two together and make a holistic idea about what the military does and may incorporate or copy some of these things. What is your plan against that? Well, Cedric, to your point, my plan against that is nothing. I have no plan against that. And not because I think it's a problem and I'm just not willing to solve it. I just don't think it's a problem. Everything we discuss on the show, in fact, I go through great pains to make sure, is already publicized and unclassified. We're just giving it to you straight from the people who have lived it. And we are, yeah, maybe, I guess, taking different pieces of unclassified material and putting it in a coherent manner that people could try to delve into and make sense out of. I don't know. My wife used to watch Grey's Anatomy, but that doesn't make her any better of a surgeon just because it was a hospital show. She's not a surgeon anyway. She's a realtor. So (laughs) I don't think it's a problem. I don't have a plan against it because I don't think it's a problem. 
Sorry, Cedric or anyone else who thinks I'm ignoring a problem, but there you go. All right, we're going to keep it short because I got to get on the road here, but this is now going to be a discussion on the San Diego Air and Space Museum. And I know you're probably thinking, uh, I don't know if I want to listen to this. Well, we can't always give you the home runs. These are base hits, just like our humanitarian assistance and disaster relief last episode. I kind of figured it wasn't going to be our number one downloaded YouTube episode, but this is important stuff. And we are, I think, casting a light on people that are doing important things. Hope you enjoy it. And if not, no problem. We'll see you next time. But for everyone else, here we go. Never mind more cowbell. If you need more military aviation, well, the good news is you have many options. For example, you could watch a movie like Top Gun Maverick or Devotion, or you could attend an air show, or you could go online and find different shows like the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And by the way, hello and welcome. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello. And finally, and relevant to today, if you have an itch that needs scratched on military aviation, well, then one great way to handle that is to visit any one of the hundreds, maybe even thousands of aviation museums around the world. And here to help us understand today, the San Diego Air and Space Museum is Mr. James Kidrick. Jim, welcome to the show, sir. Uh, nice to uh, be here. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have you, and I'm sure this is going to be a really exciting discussion. God, I hope so. <laughs> well, you are, as I understand, the president and CEO of the San Diego Air and Space Museum. I'm looking forward to learning about the organization and its role in our favorite new movie, Top Gun Maverick, and the F-14 that we see on a flight deck. That was a first in many years. But before we do, let's get to know you a little bit. Where are you from? Where did you go to school? And looks like you served in the military. So tell us a little bit about that. So I did. I uh, was born in Bremerton, Washington certainly a bastion of United States Navy and shipyard uh, stuff. Moved to uh, South Tacoma, then Edmonds, a suburb of Seattle, uh, down to Centralia, Washington, which is midway between Portland and Seattle at age 10. Graduate of high school down there, ultimately University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. And if you've ever seen the movie An Officer and a Gentleman, I attended Aviation Officer Candidate School back in, well, I reported 9 November 1971. Okay. I just thought that was Hollywood uh, license. So there actually was an AOCS up there? No, it was down in Pensacola. Okay. So the one was Hollywood license uh, that said it was up in the Northwest. No, so I checked into Pensacola, Florida, 9 November, like I said, 71. We did have Marine drill instructors. It was everything you could imagine from a Marine drill instructor. But I think most of us who went through the program there took great pride that we went through a program that did have Marine DIs. Right. They tested us in every way. <laughs> I, I think the first week I said, this is Jim. I'm here. I thought I was going to be flying airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you ended up going through AOCS. You get to flight school, I guess, uh, as a pilot. I did. I actually uh, you know, started there in T-34s right in uh, the Pensacola area at uh, Softly Field, mm-hmm. progressed up to uh, Intermediate Jet, uh, started in Meridian, Mississippi, and then part of the single base concept for the Navy one of the A-4 squadrons transitioned over to T-2s in Kingsville. So they took 16 of us uh, who were already in stage flying the T-2 because up in uh, Meridian they had the A and the B. And then they had brand new uh, Charlies when we went down to uh, Kingsville and then over to VT-22 where I got my wings. Okay. And then what platform did you select for the fleet? Well, at that time, you know, we had just stopped bombing in Vietnam. I was very fortunate to head out to VF-126. Okay, we all selected platforms, but, um, you know, it was just kind of 
seats were not available. They had, uh, I think, one seat for like 25 people. It may have been an EA-6B because, once again, we just didn't have the attrition from the war. So I went out to Miramar, which was actually, you know, pretty phenomenal. Then I was what they called a NEFIA, non-fleet experienced aviator, as I came up for the next set of orders. They offered me an F-4 or an A-7. I uh, chose the A-7 just for a number of reasons. I had done a lot of alone sports. I was a wrestler in high school and college and even a little bit in the Navy and chose the A-7. I'm not sure I'd ever seen the airplane, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, ended up, uh, you know, flying a couple times up to Lemoore from Miramar in, in one of our A-4s and grew to love the airplane. The, you know, it was technologically, it was actually superior to any other airplane in the fleet, you know, in the day. We had an episode on the A-7, and we enjoyed it very much. Uh, I was surprised to learn about the HUD and the bombing accuracy and how stable it was and et cetera, et cetera. But is that what you flew the whole time? How many hours did you end up I did. So I've got a little over 1,600 hours in uh, A-7s. I've got over 1,800 hours in A-4s because I um, flew in 126. I ultimately then went back to uh, VT-21. I had written verbals at that time to go to the RAG as an instructor. But at that time, CNO said, we're going to man the training command at 100%. They said, where do you want to go? I just said Kingsville and BT-21. And then I was over at Sinatra staff, chief naval air training staff, as the standardization and NATOPS officer for the advanced jet syllabus, which was actually a great tour. I, uh, we had two A4s there. I scheduled them. I flew them most of the time. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, uh, the last six to eight months, all of the desks worked for me. And, you know, we had Admiral Joe Barth was the first Sinatra, then Ed Martin, who lived in Coronado, passed away now a few years ago. Ed wanted somebody that he liked to fly with him all the time. So I took him in the A-4, and uh, one day he said, because he'll call me Slug, he said, hey, Slug, uh, you know, I don't always want to go in a flight suit. Sometimes I want to wear my uniform. So why don't you go get called in the T-44? So I went, okay. So I went to the T-44 guy who was working for me, and I said, hey. So he sent me through, not just to get qualled, but he sent me through the ITU, the instructor training unit. So I went over, 10 hops, and now I'm an instructor, and the admiral could log time. See, if I'd just gone in, gotten qualled, he wouldn't be able to log flight time. So uh, it worked out for all concerned. Is this, he ended up Vice Admiral Martin? I think they named the he fitness did. center. He did. It. So he was a prisoner of war in He was. Vietnam. He okay. was. And he was just, uh, I love the guy. And that's why we got along so well. I don't remember who his flag lieutenant is, so I won't talk about that. But he didn't, <laughs> we got along much better. And certainly it was a treat for me to fly with him. Because I had to fly to all the bases anyway. You know, to fly with their instructors, their students as part of the, uh, the standard NATOPS job. It was really good. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So we could certainly spend the whole episode talking about your career. It sounds like a lot of fun. But in the end, how many years? And did you retire? Or did yeah, you... I did. I retired with uh, 21 years off the okay. Air Force's staff. I was Code 32, Ops and Plans and Force Schedules, something that now Third Fleet does. So we used to schedule all the carriers, all the air wings. And for the first Gulf War, the task was uh, six aircraft carriers, their air wings, all on station on a certain date ready to go to war, which we did, and then we had to rewrite the schedules for the next two years, which would have been guerrilla. Had, had that war lasted over that 135 days or so, we would, have been, you know, we would have been bleeding. They would have come home and said, hi, honey, it's me, I'm home. And I got to go go out. Just so the listener and viewer is aware, you said the Air Force's staff. I understand what that means, but that's not the Air Force staff. That is Commander Commander Naval Naval Air Forces. uh, And of course, Mm -hmm. we affectionately call him the person in that role. Kenny Weitzel today 
the Airbus. That's right. And that was the day when Airpac and Airlant were kind of equal. It's adjusted a little bit since that time. Admiral Weitzel has promised me he's coming on the show because not his predecessor, Bullet, or did I get that wrong? The, the man he relieved snuck out before I could get him. But I had the gentleman before that. I think it was episode 16. And uh, we talked to uh, Admiral Shoemaker about some big picture comments. And that was right when... Uh, so Chip was before him, right? Was, was it Chip? Who was Bullet? It? I thought it was yeah, Bullet. Bullet. Well, Kenny's a really good guy. Uh, he okay? says he's coming. So. Uh, he'll give you All a right. great interview. I, I really believe that. Okay. And we've become very close friends. Okay. And... Uh, well, I'll have to have you back. You can sit on this side. I can... would love to. <laughs> <laughs> and I had him come speak at a couple of groups that okay. I'm in. He's very good. So how does a man end up 21 years in the Navy, go to a museum? And if there's parts in the middle that are important, you can tell us, or if you want to skip over that. But Well, there are, because, um, you know, when I got out, I uh, said, well, do I go to law school finally? At 40-something uh, years old? Exactly. Uh-huh. And so, uh, but I've always been an event guy. I founded the Fallon Air Show back in 1988, directed it even when I uh, moved down to Air Force's staff. I love events in general. Okay. I don't care what the event is because, you know, my goal is to ensure everybody gains from it, that they're entertained, that they walk away going, I'd go do that again. And so the topic doesn't matter to me, which is, I think, very critical to anyone who does events successfully, because sometimes you get too caught up in the minutia of the detail, like an air show. So I've done 13 or 14 air shows, balloon festivals, San Diego Grand Prix car race uh, that was held at the old Naval Training Center before it uh, finally closed. And I was director of San Diego Bayfair, the unlimited hydroplanes racing on Mission Bay for eight and a half years, and I'm uh, on their board, so I've been connected with them now for about 30 years. I always tell people you don't want to get so engrossed in getting that B-25 that you put yourself out of business, you know, because you got to ask yourself, if we spend that money, how many extra people are going to come? And, you know, very candidly, an event is like going to war, except you know the date. So you have all the same same, same preparation. You're, you're going to do it. So I, I, I historically, and all those uh, people that know me well, I say, we don't have any problems. We have challenges. So don't ever walk up and say, Jim, we got a problem. You can walk up and say, we got a challenge, because we have to overcome it we're committed. That sounds like a good leadership lesson. But I'm seeing a bit of complexity here, Jim, because you said at the beginning you played solo sports, you wanted to fly the A7 because it was single seat. And of course, I let you slide. But we all know, even if you're in the airplane by yourself, you're never really by yourself. You have wingmen and all that. But And that's what we spend time on this show trying to explain. But it sounds like you, you love an active event and having people around that are having a good time. Well, I do. And I, uh, I like team building a lot. I think that's what it's all about. If you said to me, what am I most proud of at the Air and Space Museum? It's the culture of us, of our organization. Because when I got connected to the museum, I was actually working for booze. I had taken a job up running the electronic combat range in China Lake. And so moving back into the San Diego area, I went to work for booze, but I got an email. I don't know if you ever knew Pat Moneymaker, call sign Munt, old Blue Angel CEO. Okay. Well, Munt was an old friend, uh, you know, a Lamoron, and um, he sends me an email and just says, slug, don't know if this email address is uh, still good for you or not. Have something you might be interested in. Call me Munt. So I called him, and he was on the search committee you know, at the museum because there were like 47 applicants and uh, the rest is history. And now I'm in my 18th year there. Oh, wow. Well, so his son was in my air wing when he had his tragedy in the S3. 
And uh, when you said you work for booze, can I just explain for people? Because I'm afraid they're going to think I'm going to owe you a bottle for being here well, today. You do. Uh, well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but booze, Allen Hamilton, right? So big consulting firm, very, uh, right. very large in military industry. So let's talk about the museum because that's ostensibly what I invited you to hear for. But everything uh, that sounds like you've experienced so far has been exciting. But Jim, I have to ask you this from the beginning because I've got three sons and they, they don't care about much except their phones. Sorry, kids. But, you know, do, do people come to museums anymore? I mean, is this a bygone era or I mean, I went uh, recently because, of course, I was uh, invited over to get to know the folks to set up today's interview. And, and I, I was excited to see everything over there. But I think they're still excited about going to museums. Do I think that is tempered just a bit over the years? Mm -hmm. I have friends who I respect their view mm -hmm. who tell me that when they think of the word museum, they think dusty, a little quiet, okay, maybe a little antiquated, a little, you can't make a lot of noise, you know, that kind of thing. But we have lots of noise, yeah. okay? I encourage sound, I encourage uh, videos playing, you know, whatever it may be to enhance the story interactivity. There's nothing like kids smiling and laughing and playing because, uh, you know, there's a big sign in the front of the Air and Space Museum that says, enter here for fun. Because if they're having fun, okay, we can do a lot with them. Okay, they're going to, uh, we're going to educate them, we're going to inspire them, we're going to show them things that they weren't, you know, quite aware of. And, and certainly we have a brand new uh, exhibit we just opened on Feb 4 called Above and Beyond, very interactive, something I think that anyone would enjoy. Now, that being said, have I considered changing the name of the museum to something like the San Diego Air and Space Adventure Center? Just test me sometime <laughs> because it still may come. Because as you float that idea, you know, you're talking to your two sons, right? Three. Okay. Well, I had three sons also. That's oh, good. good. Talking to your three sons, if you said, hey, guys, you want to go down to the Adventure Center, they're going to go, well, come on, let's go. Because there's no doubt, okay, that that word museum has a little bit of a antiquation, you know, perhaps in it. And I know it. So if you know it and you believe it, you're going to structure it very event-centric. Because once again, if you're going to produce an event, like we do the International Air and Space Hall of Fame, it's the best evening of honoring aviation and space in the country, most likely the world. If you've never been, I encourage you to go. You will be treated to a wonderful evening. I mean, we have inducted, I've been there uh, since 2006. My first board meeting, actually, um, probably going to tell a story that I shouldn't tell. My first <laughs> board meeting was like December 2005. And I was um, sitting next to a number of people that I really didn't know. This was my first chance to really meet a number of the board members, like the majority of them. And so I'm sitting next to a gentleman who was a Navy pilot named Ben Cloud. He had come out of, uh, he was a, his heritage was Native American. He was just a great guy, but I don't know him as I'm not sure I knew the guy on my right. And I remember there was uh, a person, I won't identify who they were on the board, talking about the upcoming Hall of Fame, which was going to be in April of that year. And they were going to have as a keynote speaker a guy named Bob Crandall. Bob Crandall is kind of the chairman emeritus of American Airlines. Since you're an airline guy, the name Crandall still resonates in a very positive way with many, many people. And he is a good guy. We later on did induct Bob into the, uh, into the Hall of Fame. He was going to be the keynote speaker. They were going to induct three people who had already passed away. 
from the airline industry, okay, and I recognize maybe one of the names, not the other two, and the one not so much. So I, uh, I'm listening to them talk about the Hall of Fame and what they're going to do. First thing they talked about was they had made a decision to not do an invocation because they thought it was antiquated or, you know, whatever. So I'm just listening to this. And uh, then the second one is they were announcing who they were going to be inducting. And so I um, probably shouldn't have done this, but I raised my hand. And, as uh, a new guy. I did, as, a, <laughs> as, a, as an FNG, and we won't explain fully what that is. Thank you. And I said, um, you know, I have a fair amount of experience in producing events. I think there are two challenges you have. Number one is I've never known anybody to make a decision to go or not go to an event based on whether or not they thought there was going to be an invocation. If there's an invocation, there's an invocation. You pray to whoever your uh, Lord is. You know, or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a moment of silence, whatever yeah. it may be. So nobody worries about that. And then I said, uh, and really, your primary marketing challenge is going to be you're inducting three dead people that nobody knows. And that's going to be your challenge. They don't want to see their granddaughter, grandson, you know, whoever it might be. And uh, there was a silence, you know, in the room. I kid you not. And I just, and I said to myself, why did I say anything? But it's kind of my nature. Well, Ben Cloud, okay, remember, I don't know Ben. He leans over and gives me an elbow. He goes, well said. And I went, geez, well, at least I got, I scored with one person in the room. (laughs) All I was trying to do, you know, because we're so reluctant now to express what we believe might be the truth or our opinion. You know, we don't want to be screamed down or whatever. And, you know, my intent was to have, and you'll get a kick out of this. So I come in and I actually push the Hall of Fame from April to the following um, October or November. We still bring Bob Crandall in as a speaker, you know, but just do an event. And so we decided to piggyback onto the Hall of Fame, an award that I created called the 20th Century Distinguished Achievement Award in aviation. And so we had uh, Peter Diamandis, you know, the X Prize. We had Paul Allen, and we had uh, Burt Rattan. And so we, we actually made money. We yeah. were successful. So, Crandall, that name sounds familiar. Was he one of the helicopter pilots in the Battle of... No. No? No. Might be Chairman a, Emeritus of American Airlines. Okay. But I think that pilot, I didn't read the book, uh, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, but the right. movie right. shows a pilot who was central to that. Yeah, uh, I don't uh, think it was Bob. Anyway, so I gave you a long story. No, no, I know right. I bored the living daylights out of you. Stories but are it was, But it was kind of how I was introduced to the museum right. because the museum like many organizations, has its own personality. You know, we have docents. You know, we have restoration team members. We have a board of directors. Just all those personalities that you can possibly imagine. I think it was it was two to two and a half years before our volunteers kind of accepted me that I was going to be okay for them yeah. in their hallowed halls. Well, I mean, it sounds like you came in and started breaking some china, but sometimes you have to do that if there's a steady decline. So back to what you were saying before, Certain words have certain meanings, at least in people's minds. And so if museum keeps someone away, well, then if you change it, right? Now back to the way I phrased the question, yeah, get me off the phone or my kids off their phones. Yep. Let's get them there where they can touch and feel and Absolutely. smell and, and see and experience. Well, that's why we've got the simulators that you've seen right. there. And we, we didn't have those before. It's got to be very experiential. And that's why event philosophies actually work 
in something like that. Yeah. You know, we have the 3D, 4D theater. You know, that was funded by um, Walt Zabel, you know, over at Cubic. You know, I knew there were things there. Our budget has over tripled since I took over way wow. back then. Okay. And so we've been very, very successful. But it's really, once again, I'll reiterate, because of who we have on the team. If you were to ask me who's the lucky person, it's me because I have a board of directors that is super. They're just wonderful. They're connected. They, they're smart. Uh, we have a great staff that's the same way. So I end up being the lucky guy in that position, and I really believe that. Well, and you and said, then I have a wife who supports me. So oh, even that's, better. That's, <laughs> that's, that may be... By support, you mean she just is wondering what you're going to do or say next? To some degree. <laughs> that's mine. <laughs> oh, boy. You didn't really say that, did you? Yeah, you know? that's right. You're not going to go out looking like that, that's are you? Yeah. Oh, I get that a lot. <laughs> you're wearing that tonight? That's why a jacket or you know, a flight suit or a polo. You, you it all works. All those. It all yeah, works. Absolutely. Jim, so, I mean, as far as the background of the museum, people can look up, but what, what's important for us to know about the history of the museum? I'm sure somewhere along the way, someone decided whether it was Balboa Park that was there first, or what do we need to know about the history? Well, the park has its own history, of, of course. course. You know, we're in the uh, Ford Building, which was built in 35 for the 35-36 exposition. It's a cool building. So if you're into history, uh, we've actually done a book on the building, wow. meaning our team. Uh, we have the largest privately held archives and library now in the country. And so, uh, you know, we have researchers, uh, you know, from all over the world who use the tools that we have at the museum. So, you know, it's in round shape. It's, uh, you know, uh, they drove cars in it. They had the International Road of the Americas, you know, kind of thing. And, and they did a lot of stuff. And then they used it for about a year and a half and drove away from it. But it's got a, a world-famous mural, uh, the March of Transportation, inside that most people very candidly miss. Because I think the most interesting thing about the mural, historically, is when you get to the end of the tour of the museum, you look up, and it was kind of their vision of the future. So it's a little bit Art Deco goes aerodynamic. But like I said, I think it's very cool. So, you know, as you know, uh, the museum burned down in 1978 in the old electric building in the park. I wasn't there. As a matter of fact, uh, I have a standing, it's not going to burn down on my watch. Uh So the sprinkler systems work. The fire department does routine training in the back of our, you know, in the back parking lot. I go and tell them whenever I see them, keep coming here. When you stop, I'm going to come looking for you. So it burned down. So uh, the resurrection in the Ford building, the Ford building very candidly was a derelict. And so I would tell you that in a weird sort of way, it was a fortunate fire, certainly not for some of the things they lost uh, because they lost their first uh, Spirit of St. Louis. Uh, We rebuilt the one we have now, you know, uh, from the ground up. But T. Claude Ryan, you know, himself participated in its construction. It last flew in 2003 on the 75th anniversary of, uh, of Lindbergh Field because I still call it Lindbergh Field. It doesn't have to be called San Diego International <laughs> like they want. Well, and they're building some new terminals now, so they might finally get their way. You said earlier about how that's a hive of activity and noise and they're spinning blades on the Cobra in the pavilion. And so we all know that we're here in our studio now, but at one point we thought, boy, let's record there because then we got these amazing backdrops. And the acoustics are not terrific for a podcast, dare I say. Plus, boy, you're about, what, 200 feet below southwest when they're coming overhead? We are. We call that the Balboa Park pause. When the airplanes come 
you know, overhead. Because you have events there. We do. So if someone's speaking and an airplane comes over? It depends on on the loudness of the event, but yes, and they just pause or they keep talking. Needless to say, the uh, the PA and the you know the sound system works pretty well. We've been able to uh, conquer that. Mm-hmm. Although the greatest single challenge is it's a round building, so sound just starts going you know literally all over. But it's a cool building, and uh, you know our restoration department you know downstairs because we have two restoration facilities. We have one at Gillespie Field as well as the one in the basement of the of the main museum where we're building right now a Hughes H1 racer. Uh, you think of the airplane Leo crashed in the movie The Aviator. We're going to bring the second one in the world back alive, uh, which was a real challenge because there are no plants. The one in the National Air and Space is the one. And so uh, fortunately, Jack Daly, the uh, the director for you know, about 20 years was a very good friend. I said, I need pictures and I need rulers and I need <laughs> tape measures. I thought you were going to say you need lasers and... Uh... Well, some of that too. We've had some people help us with certain uh, elements of it. But, uh, you know, this is the day of, you know, flush rivets, you know, coming along and, you know, all that kind of cool stuff. And jazz. it's, it's yeah. quite a... Because we have several airplanes, the GB and the P-26 that are ground up builds, including actually our Bell X-1 as you walk into the... Uh, the main rotunda. Because, you know, when I give presentations, I talk about, you know, aviation in space and how it really is a perfect overlay to the march or growth of technology worldwide. You know, you think of uh, December 17, 1903, the Wright brothers for 12 seconds and 120 feet on the first flight. And that was 120 years ago. And, uh, you know, how far have we come? You know, World War One, of course, was huge. Uh, then you've got, uh, you know, uh, big, tall, lanky guy, Lindbergh, who crosses the Atlantic in 33 and a half hours solo when people had died trying because, you know, that airplane was built in San Diego, that Ryan airplane that he flew, the Spirit, because most people don't know where the how did he get the Spirit of St. Louis? And, of course, it was a competition called the Ortigue Prize out of St. Louis, but he chose an aircraft manufacturer here in San Diego. And then, uh, you know, Jaeger breaks the sound barrier, October 1447. Uh, we're walking on the moon in uh, 69, and uh, we're going to go back. So when you look at it, it's really pretty cool to believe, because you were involved and all the people that have been involved, you know, in aviation and space have used those kinds of technologies that we see, you know, Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever. So all we got to do is age a little bit more and maybe we'll see some of that stuff. <laughs> maybe so. Well, let's hope. Does the museum itself have a mission per se or a mission statement? I mean, It what, does. It know. does. It's probably easiest to look it up because, you know, it's complicated like everything else. But, you know, really, you know, our primary job is to excite, incentivize, provide a fun place, a, an activity. And many years ago, I actually stole this statement from, it's a theme park production company, okay, okay, that has like Dollywood. It's the Herschel Corporation, and it's to create memories worth repeating. And, you know, if you simplify it that much, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what we're about because we'd like people to come back. We'd like them to leave knowing that they didn't really see it all. I think that, you know, when I first got to the museum, it was about a 30 to 40-minute walk. Now you can spend literally four, five, six hours. You can spend a long time, and you're not going to see it all. And you're not going to experience it all. From, like I said, the 3D, 4D theater to, you know, the Sims to, you know, all the experiences that we can provide. And, of course, a tremendous amount of interactivity that's, you know, simple, but we also have complicated or 
more complicated. Well, let's discuss some of those because I assume you have programs, whether it's for children or maybe just enthusiasts. So we do. We have an education department. You know, we're a member of the uh, Price Charities School in the Park program. So we have kids in the museum during the school year every day going to school with us, which is always very exciting. I love to hear kids' voices, and I think it's a tremendous program, primarily from the City Heights School. So some of the kids that are, you know, underserved or a little bit perhaps more at risk. But it's, you know, it's who we are as a community. And, you know, we have summer camps. You know, matter of fact, we just had our staff meeting this morning at 10 o'clock, and uh, our education director said, oh, my God, in the first 10, you know, we had 104 people, sign, you know, and there are more signing up. So they'll go on wait lists, and uh, so I encourage people to, uh, to get in early. Get on our website. We have a really, really good website. Do some deep diving. See what the museum offers. We have birthday parties. We have 85 to 90 events there a year. High school proms. Uh, you, uh, you would be surprised how many people said, you know, I had my high school prom there. I had my graduate, you know, whatever it may be. So we can be, you know, something that's important to the community, you know, the in-town tourists, but we can also be something to the out-of-town tourists because it's uh, the most common question I ask people when I'm down on the floor is where are you from? And then how'd you find us? because it's an interesting equation, Mm -hmm. really, knowing that so many people get on the web. They get on the internet and they search, you know, for a good time, you know, whatever it may be, and they end up at the museum. That's not a bad problem to have. No, it's not. And, uh, and of course, COVID was pretty brutal. We were close 266 days. We had four reopenings. We're the only museum, okay, in this region that on those four reopenings did reopen. The only one, each one of the four, and we opened seven days a week. We didn't just open for two days a week or three days a week. And our team, very candidly, is proud of that. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a little bit, you as another Navy guy, okay, we got to do the next launch, so let's go. Now, some organizations used COVID to sort of regroup and refresh. Did you just turn off the lights and walk out? or what Oh, did no, 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 we were there. We knew what we had to do, and uh, because some also cleaned house of people. Our goal was to retain 100% of our team members because how do you just start letting people go at one of the worst times in the history of our, certainly the worst time in the history of me, and we retained them all. We had some natural attrition, meaning people, you know, leaving the job, retiring, moving, you know, whatever it may be, but we did not lay off one person, and we're very proud of that. It's not just employees, though. I assume you have volunteers as well. We do. We have a couple hundred volunteers who are with us, you know, all the time because, once again, we're a a seven-day-a-week organization. You know, we're busiest, of course, on Saturday, Sunday, and then Friday and on down the, you know, the quietest day is probably Monday. So if you just want the museum to yourself (laughs) or I'd come on a Monday. Come on a Monday or Tuesday. Okay. Now, earlier you talked about the two facilities, one in Balboa Park and then one just up the street from us here at Gillespie Field. We're in the Circle Air Group uh, FBO here. And part of the reason I thought to reach out to your organization is I would drive by it and say, check it out. They got an F-8 or an F-86 or an H-60 or a big rocket. I'm not quite sure what kind that is. but Oh, it's an Atlas. An Atlas. So great history here in San Diego. Okay. You know, one of our plans is to possibly move it down to uh, Balboa Park. That Atlas? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what happens out here? And are people able to come to Glasgow? They are. They can go uh, there. I think we're only closed one day a week, one or two days. So get online and check. And Yeah, your, but it's online. Okay. And uh, it's a nominal fee, but it's a great facility. We have, as you described, a number of airplanes. You know, one of the ones we acquired most recently was uh, Baron Hilton's Staggerwing. 
So if you're a, an aviation aficionado and you want to see, I think, one of the most beautiful airplanes of all time, you're going to see his stagger wing with Barron's name on it. Funny story, we inducted Barron into the Hall of Fame, and I was up in the Beverly Hilton in his office. He was a heavy cigar smoker. I thought I was smoking a cigar, and I wasn't. <laughs> but just such a gentleman. And uh, we're going through this and talking about the evening and, you know, what he could expect and his concerns are, you know, of course, it's going to go very well with him. And uh, but he turns to me all of a sudden. He goes, uh, Jim, can you think of any reason why I shouldn't give you my stagger wing when I pass away? Well, I didn't come up there to ask for the stagger wing. But now Baron Hilton has just said this to me. And I said, you know, Baron, I'm going to flunk that test. I can't think of any reason <laughs> why. And within two weeks, the paperwork was done, and we have the airplane, you know, here at Gillespie. And it, once again, it's a beauty. Besides all the other airplanes that we have there, the P2 and— I want to ask you about some of them, because okay. I'm guessing I'm the only one when I walk up to your front door at Balboa who thinks, oh, look, it's an SR-71. <laughs> right. It's an A-12, of course. A-12. It's the first version, yeah. you know. Yeah, single and, seat. Uh, single seat, and um, heck of an airplane. I mean, just, what do you say about the Blackbird? I I mean, it's just magic. Did you ever get a chance to land at Beale when they were flying? No, I never, oh wait, or did I? I think I might've gone there once in an F-16, but I was a student, and so I was just focused on not screwing up. Well, believe it or not, I had to divert there because of fog in the valley one time. Oh, gosh, yeah. So I land without a DD-175 flight plan. Uh Well, you would have thought I was... Invading. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you know, there are dogs and guns and all this kind of stuff, and... And, of course, as you know, they leak like a sieve on the ground. But, yeah. you know, just, like I said, what an airplane. And uh, and was that one a flyer? I mean, so oh, sure. some of these you're recreating or... Uh, oh, no, 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 no. Are all it's these the real deal. Everything in the museum? The majority. There's only a couple. Like uh, a mock-up, maybe you would call it? Or what would you call well, it? Well, uh, okay, so yeah. when we built the P-26, the P-Shooter, okay, which is kind of an in-between World War One, World War Two airplane, all-metal construction, still fixed gear, open cockpit, round engine. Okay, but it's immaculate, meaning inside, outside, in the wind. I'll go by the uh, restoration team members. You know, you could just kind of maybe one rib, skip two, do another <laughs> rib. You're going to cover these, right? <laughs> I'm joking when I say that to them because they look at me like, what are you talking about, Jim? So we don't build anything that isn't totally accurate and could fly. Even on the inside where you won't see it. Even on the inside. So that GB, okay, you got to remember the GB is an early 30s airplane. When the GB was flying, Bonnie and Clyde were doing their thing. So we actually, when we built it, because, you know, this is an airplane that's a big engine with the little wings, uh, tended to uh, want to uncouple itself and, you know, flip over. Fly the wrong way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And swap ends. So Doolittle flies one in September of 32 to 296 miles per hour, the world speed record. When military airplanes, most were struggling to get over 200. Remember, this is, you know, like I said, the early 30s, and speed was everything. So if you look at it inside the cockpit, it is just magnificent, the workmanship, the wings, because, you know, there's an airplane that's uh, metal, wood, and fabric typical of the day and just uh, like i said the workmanship is just and a handful of the fly i heard so if you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground then air corps aviation is the place for you since 2008 air corps aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to world war ii 
Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, AirCore Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. Well, yeah. to see, just a taxi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you look at that thing. And, you know, the Granville brothers, when we got the plans for that one, the only thing we had to agree to is not to put a uh, fuel tank because we weren't going to put any fuel in it. So Interesting. But that was the deal to get the plants. Okay. So when you walk in past my SR-71 A12, you go into, I think, the rotunda first, and then in the pavilion. Now, we had Willie D on the show talking about his five shoot-downs, but we have, what, an F4 chasing a MiG-17. So tell me about that. We do. Well, you know, it's iconic, Yeah. okay, because if you look at uh, Vietnam and you think of the air war in Vietnam, Mm -hmm. okay, it's the MiG-17 and the F4 because the MiG-17 shot down more than anything else, followed by the 21 because – and, of course, we did place the F4 in the right little, you know, spot behind (laughs) the MiG-17. But, you know, we've got, you know, Willie's name on it. Willie's a great guy. He's as good at the job and the presentation of – Top Gun and the Top Gun discipline, as I think anybody gives. He has decades of experience, not to take away from it, but he's been doing it a long time. That's so exactly. I would hope in 40 years I'm good at this podcasting thing finally, Jim. Well, I think you seem to be doing okay. <laughs> well, you've got yeah. an F-18, which I loved seeing because I flew the F-18 mainly, yep. and it's painted in Blue Angel colors. So my question here is, is it a Blue Angel? Or if you have an F-18 in the museum, let's paint it like a Blue Angel because the kids will like that more. No, it's a Blue Angel Hornet. It was a um, project that I worked with Boeing. We identified it. It actually came out of Florida, so it flew with the blues. But what we needed to do when it got to us is we needed to give it a paint job. So it went up to Leading Edge up in Victorville that does a lot of the painting for uh, Boeing. And, of course, they took it on as a pet project. They, you know, were glad to do this for Boeing and for the museum. So they came down, you know, when we brought the airplane, uh, you know, in. And, you know, we've got, you know, a brand new uh, Blue Angel helmet on the mannequin. And so we've got all the right stuff. So it has the pedigree of the Blues and certainly of the Hornet. And it's, it's really the best looking one you'll ever see. Because I went to the Blues, so I, like all of us who know people, I said, I need decals, I need intake covers, I need you know, tail, I need everything. Yeah, yeah. And they sent it. That's so. good. Now, was that flown out here, or did you fly it to Victorville? Or no, no, no. It, it was already out of the uh, Blue Angel fleet. Okay. It had come out of, uh, I'm not sure if it was, a, it may have been at Jacksonville. And so we hauled it out, and Boeing brought it to us, and uh, you know we're very proud of, of how it looks. Jim, I have to tell you this quick story, although I think I've shared it with listeners and viewers before, but I passed on the freeway one time an F-18 fuselage, and it had my name on it. 
<laughs> it would have happened. There's, there's just something that's not right about that. <laughs> <laughs> it was VFA 86. Our air wing commander had a hard landing and it never flew again. He did that at CQ in the beginning of deployment. How do you have a hard landing in a Hornet? I don't know. I have he's... flown the Hornet and landed it from the yeah. back seat. It's like flying a T2. Well, anyway, we were based in Jacksonville, Florida. I saw it here in Southern California about six months later, and it had trucked all the way across, and that aircraft and I just happened to meet on Interstate 405, and I looked over and just did a double take. It was crazy. God was thinking of you. Yeah, very, indeed. He does <laughs> That's frequently. Right. How about the uh, P-51 in there? What's the story with it? Well, you know, we have it in the uh, Tuskegee Airmen Red Tail Squadron Colors. I think probably the coolest thing about the airplane, something that most people won't ever see, is what we inducted the Tuskegee Airmen into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame. And so when we do an organization, a group, a team, you know, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. we usually bring two people to represent them. We brought two, uh, Lee Archer and Roscoe Brown two of the finest gentlemen I've ever met in my life, but I'm back with the airplane and we're walking around and I said, come here to both of them. And I happened to have a gold Sharpie, Sharpie. on me. I okay, So I had them both sign the tail of the airplane. And just knowing that it's there permanently because they both have passed away, but they represented the, the airmen as well as anybody I've ever seen represent another organization. There is a gentleman who flies for my airline who I flew with once, and uh, he is a son of a Tuskegee Airman and flies a P-51 at air shows. Well, the P-51, let's not kid ourselves, is one of the sexiest airplanes of World War II. If you just said, okay. Maybe ever. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Which airplane do you want to go fly? It's like, um, oh, God, I'm trying to think of Bud Anderson's airplane. You know, Bud had 16 and a quarter kills. Old Crow. Crow, you know, yeah, so yeah. you'll go to uh, Air Venture and you'll see eight of them <laughs> because it's such a popular right. paint well, job. Speaking of sexy airplanes, did you end up with the S3 Viking that uh, President Bush flew in? Was, is it, was that here or where did that end up? Do you know? We have it. Yeah. Is it on it display? It went to NASA. Okay. So it's out of Gillespie. Okay. So it did fly in. It must be about a year and a half ago. But, you know, the engines are still in it. They did something to, so we couldn't start it. But I always said, you know, a pilot's biggest single fear is, how do I start it? You know, if you get it started, we can play with the trim on takeoff roll or, you know, <laughs> we'll figure it out. They landed and poured something down the fuel tank. To exactly. Like exactly. From, they heard and about you. So we've got that here. What was surprising about that airplane, of course, is that we needed them to fold the wings. They'd been flying it straight winged, uh-huh. meaning they weren't folding it for a couple of years. So it was a big event just to see the wings okay. fold as they brought it in. And it's sitting near the P2V probably the Navy's uh, last version of a World War II looking-like airplane that was a firefighter, modified, and... We had an episode on aerial firefighting. I'm kind of disappointed, Jim, you didn't flinch when I called the S3 sexy. Well... With all due respect, I have a lot f- of friends who yeah, flew them, too. so I, <laughs> I'd have to defend myself, you know, because you, uh, okay, you know, it was effectively called the Hoover because how it sounded on the ball, you know, just, you know, but... Having flown with it on cruise, okay, it was a uh, phenomenal uh, tanker, okay, Mm -hmm. so it did that role extremely well. I'm not totally sure why they took the ASW mission off the fleet carriers, but they did, and that's really because, you know, we have subs out there and other stuff. Well, at the top, I mentioned viewers can go to movies if they want more military aviation, and one of those was Devotion. You have an F4U Corsair. Is that a hot spot for uh, viewers these days? Are they coming by to see that one? I don't think necessarily to see that airplane. I think that they recognize it more, sure. you know, what it is. Okay. The original Corsair is 
it probably matches the P-51 in its sexiness, uh, you know, as an airplane and how it looks. You know why the gull wing, right? It had to do with the uh, getting the landing gear strong enough, didn't it? Uh-uh. Size of the prop. Size of the prop. So they I just, should know this. They just bent the wing, Okay. took the prop up higher, and now you got a gull wing design because it's the only gull wing design there is. Now, that airplane came to us. That is probably one of the finest restoration projects that our team ever took on. It came out of Texas. Uh, it had been in Katrina, a significant amount of damage, and candidly, the poor workmanship in its prior restoration. So our team took to it. We put Jerry Coleman's, you know, so that's in marine markings. Jerry Coleman, of course, the, uh, the ex-Padre uh, coach for a year, an announcer, and uh, he played for the Yankees and was actually the, the MVP uh, in the World Series. I asked him, I said, because Jerry was just really a great guy, I said, okay, what's the deal? MVP. He goes, it seemed like every time I got up there was somebody on base, I hit him in. And so, <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's the better, runs batted in kind of thing. Better lucky than good, right? Abs- uh, absolutely. It sounds like he had both. Well, and we inducted uh, Jerry into the Hall of Fame. Oh, good. He was the only Major League Baseball player in the history of the sport to fly combat in two wars. You made me think of something. I don't know why, but there are, for example, F4Us still flying. There are P-51s still flying. There's a handful of warbirds still flying. Does anyone ever reach out to you and say, I'm really needing this part right now. Can you help me? A few times. <laughs> really? <laughs> What's the answer? No? Well, if it was a trade part for part, meaning ours worked, theirs didn't, ah. but it would fit in and, and you wouldn't know it, mm-hmm. we would consider that. We've had it happen a couple times. Because, once again, you're out there looking for stuff. You know, we have a beautiful Spitfire. Probably one of the most significant airplanes, believe it or not, is the Japanese Zero. Yeah. You just don't see a lot of Zeros, Japanese Zeros. Of all the aircraft in there, what's your favorite? Well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a real fan of the A-4 Skyhawk, okay? It was just one fun airplane to fly. Got a roll rate that certainly beats the Hornet, you know, the F-14 or whatever. 720 degrees per second max deflection roll rate is fun you know if you just pull it in the vertical and you do six seven or eight of them it's you know so like i said it was very fun i was a small guy fit very well at that time very much fun to fly a lot of acm in it you know very fortunate to fly on a million top gun missions you know with 126 because you know you need all the uh, the adversary you know assets you can get and so um you know, fights on at the merge, and uh, and there was nothing better than uh, being an A4. We had an A4 episode as well. A couple of weeks ago, we released a video of me explaining all the patches on my side of the wall yeah. here. And if you look over my shoulder, you'll see VT7 in the A4. And at one point, I showed people the Skyhawks Forever patch over here. And I told them, I said, I never felt comfortable wearing that because with 110-ish hours as a student, it was different than someone like you who flew quite a bit right. and did missions in it. So I, I love the patch because uh, of the colors on it. You can see it over there. Well, like but, I said, over 1,800 hours in the airplane, you start to feel that you know it a little bit. VT-7, of course, was a squadron that when I was at Sinatra, Chief Naval Air Training Staff, I would go down and fly with their instructors and their students. And, you know, it was really important, and just to kind of maybe add this to the conversation, we don't need to talk about it anymore, but the importance of ensuring that when we pin the wings of gold on at some squadron in Meridian, Mississippi, or Beeville at the time, right. Kingsville at the time, that they're the same wings. When they show up in the fleet, it's absolutely critical that they uh, they have that same level of high-performance training. Yeah. Well, then yeah. I got to do the Blue Angel NATOPS checkride. You did? 
Yeah. You, what, so, you went up in the back seat? Yeah. So, oh. uh, you know, I had, uh, I think it was the Marine rep at the time. We were doing a command inspection because they worked for Sinatra. Okay. And I had to give the NATOPS check ride. And uh, I said, now, do you really think I'm going to give a down to a police <laughs> agent? Do I look that stupid? <laughs> yeah. Jim, some of the aircraft in the museum, at least in the Balboa facility, are pretty big. So is it like a when you go to a car dealership and you wonder how they got the big truck on the showroom floor? I mean, are there big doors that open or do you there have are. cranes? There or? are. On two okay. sides of the museum. Uh, the Hornet was a classic example. You know, that's not a small airplane. No. You know, when the Hornet replaced the Corsair, the Corsair II, the A7, you know, all of a sudden the footprint on the flight deck became just a little more crowded. So, uh, we, you know, we've got big doors. The airplane gets real skinny without wings and... Uh, of course, we're a poured-in-place concrete building, so we have a lot of strength to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been verified by a lot of the uh, architects that work on historic structures because this is not a new building. You know, we have, you know, ones that are hanging, and but we've had them all checked to make sure that they're safe because, you know, even in San Diego, we get a, occasionally a little, and all of a sudden you'll look out, well, there's one that's kind of moving a little, you know. Swaying a bit. Yeah. Oh, boy. All right, so in 2019, there was an article about something like an F-14 has appeared on a carrier flight deck for the first time in over 10 years. And I believe the San Diego Air and Space Museum had a role in that. So take it from the beginning. Well, a good friend of mine, Greg Keithley, you know, uh, Chaser, Chaser. you know, at uh, Hook, uh, you know, he was providing them some uh, consultation. Yeah, he was involved. You know, on the whole movie process. And he's a great guy and a great friend. And he uh, said, well, you know, my buddy Jim's got one. Why don't you call Slug? And uh, and they did, and we worked out a you know deal, and it was gone for about five months. You know, came back to us. Uh, so and this is probably I'm going to give you a little bit of a sneak preview on something we're working on. Okay. Is our plan is to take the seat art off of the front of it's the next museum to the A12 there, and put up our Tomcat. Really. And so that's a project we're working on right now, working with the Tomcat Association, their group, you know, on on that and some other stuff associated with it. And uh, so we think that'll be a great project. You know, you think of, um, remember, I'm back, uh, you know, in 126 at Miramar about the time that the F-14 is really just getting going over in 124. So it's, I I think it's very exciting. And to realize the VF-1 and 2, you know, left Miramar on Enterprise, you know, on that first cruise. So we just got to figure out what, how we're going to paint it and whose name's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably some politics around oh, that my goodness. here in San Diego. Fortunately, I know who gets to make the final decision. Ah, very good. So that's okay. good. So at some point, right, meetings, emails, whatever, as far as we, can we borrow this thing? And you don't have to talk about any if there's compensation or not. But So they whisk it away to make it look the way they want it to look for the movie. But how, this is like an F-18, the one I saw with my name on it, they just pull the wings off and off it goes on the bed of a truck. Can an F-14 go down the highway? Kind of, because as you know, the swing wing, okay, a little bit of it. That's right. right. They can fold, but they had to, you know, they got to take wings off and that kind of stuff. Uh, Because, you know, later on, that became part of the Tomcats challenge, okay, as the swing wing starts to to wear out in a weird sort of way. You know, they did whatever it took. Uh, They compensated us for the scarring that did occur that had to be fixed. But, you know, it was certainly worthy of participation in the movie. You know, the movie, 
you know, we all look at it as naval aviators, and we go five percent real, ninety <laughs> percent, you know, but, you know, whatever it may be. These are great flying movies, and they generate a lot of excitement for everyone who gets to watch them. I think when you go back and you realize, so what were you doing in 1980s? (laughs) You know, seeing it for the first time, we didn't expect there to be a second one. So just the fact that they had a second one and that it was uh, very successful is really a credit to an awful lot of people. Indeed. I had some of them on this show, actually. I was proud to do that. And the movie itself helped put us a little bit on the map because there was an excitement around military aviation. So people found us, which was great. So again, if even if you pull the wings off an F-14, it's still pretty big. So are these getting on special trucks and moving at three in the morning kind of thing? Okay. And then as far as putting it on the carrier, I mean, those big cranes that are there anyway. That's the easy part, really. Okay. Because they've all got lifting points. That's the easiest part of it. You know, years ago, I uh, I was the event manager. When I was on Air Force's staff, I was the event manager for the Jimmy Doolittle Raid reenactment back in 1992. Okay. I always thought that was the biggest single challenge. You know, we qualified four airplanes on the runway, you know, in short takeoff procedures, trim settings, you know, all that kind of stuff. And qualified four, that if we got two up, we'd crane them both aboard to make sure one could fly off. If they were both up, we'd launch them both, which we did. But my biggest fear was we drop one. And so uh, they had four points, and they lifted them up because, you know, these aren't new airplanes. And so we had in the mood and heavenly body two B-25s, you know, replicate the launch first time since uh, World War II. Very cool. That's that event thing, remember? I see a theme here. When you got the F-14 back, was it back the way you wanted it? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. They took care of as much as they could. There's going to be, you know, little... You know, love kisses. You know, if if you will, but uh, but they didn't put it like on its nose, like the way the movie depicted it after no, it come to a barricade. No, no, it didn't get any. Of that. There's a lot of CGI. Right. Know, I was about to say. Obviously, you and I know it didn't fly. That's correct. Uh, that's but they correct. did fly, as that's we correct. heard from. And they didn't rip the gear off. You know. When, ah, you true. Know. <laughs> yeah. And they might have gently draped a uh, barricade netting over it to right. uh, to film. Right. Okay. So, like I said, we're very excited about putting this on a stick. In front of the museum, we think it'll be very iconic for San Diego, all of it, military aviation history. The Tomcat will resonate with everybody, oh, yes. whether they flew it or not. I actually went through their three-week-long ground school course because I was, you know, sitting there going, "Okay, what's going to happen?" So I wanted to. I went to Sear School, you know, checking as many boxes before as before you could. went off to A sevens. Right. Okay. Right. Now you said put it on a stick and just curious detail. Generally on the aircraft out front, you typically like to raise them up so people don't bonk their heads. I mean, we will for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but inside, right? I mean, how do you remind people to be careful? Well, it's very packed they inside. They, they don't seem to bump their heads, which is good. Here's what I tell people, because we're a little bit different than national air and space. They get real edgy of, oh, you can't touch that, can't touch this. If somebody, some little 12-year-old or eight-year-old kicked one of those airplanes, we can fix it. I know it sounds corny. But probably better than getting mad at the child and, and creating absolutely. an experience where oh, they now absolutely. associate military aviations with pain. Yeah, so somebody reaches out and touches the end of the wing just to feel what it's like, that's kind of okay. We can wipe you know, off there's nothing we can't oils. wipe off, clean off, paint, <laughs> because I think that's an important element. You know, when you're a kid, you kind of, you know, there's kind of a touchy-feely part of all of us. You know, what does that feel like, right. you know? and. What kind of an edge is that? So uh, we can offer that. I sometimes 
wish I hadn't lost that wonder. You know, kids have, I think, the right way of looking at things, and the rest of us just get too much scarring or baggage or something along the way. But anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. What's the future for the museum? Oh, sorry, the Adventure Center. See, I like it. It sounds cool, doesn't it? Yeah, I like it. Well, I think that, um, okay, so if I had it my way, you know, we'd add about 80,000 square feet onto the museum right there in Bubble Park. And I have some rough schematics showing that because there's so much more. Here's the challenge when you're a museum that has historic representations. Today is tomorrow's history. So if you're there to connect the dots, okay, show them that progression, but you're also there to give them a vision of the future. Because with young people, those what I affectionately call the next greatest generations. I think what drives us, especially the children of the greatest generation, is a belief that there will be future greatest generations because that's the message they left us. My dad was one of those who uh, you know, headed off to war at age 17, had to get his mother's permission to quit school, okay, with the promise that he would go back to school when the war was over. That's how my parents met. She's two years younger than he is. So he goes off, finishes the war, because remember, his brothers are already there, etc. And those stories impacted us, I think, in a very positive way that we all believed in this country. There's patriots and there are people who aren't patriots. I prefer hanging around with patriots, people who believe in who and what we are as a nation. Because if we're gonna have a strong future, your three sons, my three sons, all of our kids that are out there, we do this for a reason. You know, anybody who chose to wear the uniform said, I'm willing to give it all for the future of them. That's just the way it is. And we don't think about it. It's not like we say, oh, you know, what if I'm going to die on this flight? Sooner or later, you don't get in the cockpit if you think that way. And so uh, the people I've met over the years and uh, been able to call friends, you know, my best friend in the Navy was a guy named Phil Mills, Philo. Uh, everywhere we went in our first fleet squadron on debt to Fallon on the ship you know we roomed together you know we got to know each other pretty well his wife always said Ed said you grew up together and uh, there's a lot of truth to that as you go back to the room and you tell a buddy how you almost killed yourself that night you know I pay him the biggest compliment I can pay any other Navy pilot I've ever known and that's that he flies like me now judgmentally that may not be good okay but he flies like me and it all makes sense so if ever we went flying together we'd get back and we'd debrief and go well it looked okay from my standpoint you know it didn't have much to say it's kind of corny but it's no, it's good but it's true it's good and it's a refreshing perspective you offer on the next generation because if you believe media and news and everything else it's all ugliness and bad and this and that and I personally believe you find what you look for. If you look for beauty in this world, you'll find it. If you look for ugliness, it's plenty of it, you'll find it. And so it's good to know that people like you, Jim, are in positions like you are at the San Diego Air and Space Museum to keep that legacy alive, but also to avail it to that next generation that hopefully a young girl or boy will show up and say, this is what I wanna do. I mean, happens a lot at air shows. That's where it happened for me. I hope it happens there as well because there's a lot of amazing stuff in there and you just never know what kind of spark you can trigger for someone. No, you don't, and um, you'll get a kick out of this. So um, when I was an instructor at VT-21 in uh, Kingsville, one of my students was a guy named Greg Dishart. I don't know if you know the name. Call sign Hollywood. 
he happened to be a Top Gun during the filming yeah, of the yeah, first movie. Right. So Greg, um, it, we've always been good friends. And I was fortunate. I got a great student. He says he has a great instructor, but let me tell you, when you have a great student, it's always you know easy to be a good instructor. And um, a few months ago, talking about you know one of his sons had just been picked up for flight training and just the joy of all of that and the realization that your kids are going to do what your kids do. Right. Whatever they do, you just want to be there to support them. But being patriotic and appreciative of the freedom that we have in this country, once again, no matter what you do, not everybody's going to go in the military, but Everything we do counts as people, as human beings. One of my pet peeves is the word individuals. So you'll never hear me use, there were three individuals seen running from the fire because I think it depersonalizes who we are as people. You would never say, look at the aircraft. You'd say, look at the F-14 Tomcat and just being more descriptive. So it's very, I have all these corny things but as you get older, you uh, sure. you become a little more cordy. Well, that's okay. I think it's almost expected. So we asked about the future of the museum. What about the future of Jim? That's really a great question because I'm not uh, 16 anymore. But I have no pressure to uh, to leave. I have, as I said, a wonderful board of directors because it, you just start thinking naturally of you know, what's going to happen as, uh, you know, I tell people, you know, sometimes we're in our own car and we're driving along talking to ourselves, right? We have that conversation, just nobody else around except it's like us. singing in the shower. It, that's exactly, <laughs> that's right. And so uh, every so often you realize that you're closer to 100 than you are to zero. And it's the realization of what do you want to do? You know, have you ensured that your wife has gotten all those things that she should get? being, uh, you know, your partner, which being the partner of somebody like me has to be pretty rugged, just from the standpoint of, you know, working and time away and just doing things. Because I still haven't stopped thinking about things I want to do. And when I say I want to do, it's really a we, our, us. It's, you know, develop a team. You know, I've I said, you know, well, why not just get five, six or 10 of your buddies and form a business. And the business is whatever we want to do and what we're good at. But sometimes you may be good at something, but you finally say, I don't want to do that anymore, even though you do it well. So I don't know. My executive committee, and this is a very candid uh, thing, give us two years notice, will you? You know, how many times does somebody, two years, that's a long time. That's what they told you. (laughs) I said, we can work that. All right. Well, Jim, you've been a lot of fun. You have a lot of single engine fighter time or or attack. So I have to ask you this, sorry, do your takeoffs equal your landings? Uh, Fortunately, they do. Well, because, you know, the old joke was we took off with the emergency. You know, anybody- Low on fire, low on fuel. Exactly, and so anybody (laughs) who flew with two engines, when they went single engine, they declared an emergency. Okay, well, were we supposed to declare an emergency (laughs) at an A4 or an A7 when you took off? I have an emergency, I'm single engine, you know. Low on fuel. Exactly. (laughs) Fortunately, the A7, had good reach to it. The A4, a little bit less. But like I said, both good airplanes. And you don't think about it because the 35 comes along and how many engines they put in it. You know, the controversy of, well, do we do another single engine airplane? But if you look back at the stats and the data, the frequency of a single engine, if you got a good engine, which they should have by now, we've had some bad engines in the past. You know, they should have re-engined the A7, the uh, TF-41. Uh, they should have Bratt and Whitney offered them an engine. They should have taken it. 
I was about 20 years of service, mostly F-18s up to that point when mm-hmm. I finally had a chance to go fly the F-16. And I thought about it a lot, actually, because <laughs> that was just the community was, right. you've got two engines, and if you lose one, it's emergency. And we'd go out, and of course, it sort of was self-perpetuating because we'd go out and practice those, what do we call them? But, you know, when you're like, oh, my engine has a problem. If I can make it to high key, I can swirl down, or oh, it's... PPAs. Precaution, precautionary right. approaches. approaches oh, no, we did them in the A7. SFO, and the A- I think we also call it. Simulated yeah. flame-out approach. Right. That would be an SFA. Well, anyway. well, you know, we just, yeah. in both airplanes, we just set the power to 80%. Okay. Crackle board, maybe? Um, Not in the A7. Didn't in the A7, because, you know, once you adopt the gear and flaps aboard, that was the main problem. That was the challenge in landing the airplane, is that you wanted one more high-drag device out on the ball. Because you remember you're back on the power a little further than you wanted to be, so we used to say you're working the axle decel cycles on the engine. You've moved the throttle; it's not going to be there in a second. You're going to move it back up. It didn't bother you to fly a slightly slow turn in the VFR pattern. I was very fortunate that I landed well, and I won the rag rag oh, award, and the, the bottle, and the training command from the LSOs, and that helped. That you know that you focused on that because. We went down to the Lex, you know, the first time in the Lexington Carrier. Yeah, Lexington. Mm -hmm. And we didn't use the HUD because you don't know if you're going to get it. Because if you do a startup on deck, they have no sins. So you're not going to be able to. You'll have to go out and fly for 10 or 15 minutes to somehow get the platform to get the HUD. The sins is the little signal, right, from the carrier. Ship's inertial navigation system feeds the airplane. So that your heads-up display will be accurate in the middle of the ocean. Well, and that you'll get a platform. Meaning the stable mm-hmm. gyro mm-hmm. effect. And right? that's what's ultimately going to give yeah. you the HUD. And so um, I didn't think that much about it. You know, we all have had stuff, but, you know, both airplanes, you know, is basically setting the power at about 80%. The A7 was flying like, you know, 190 to 200, 210, you know, with the PPA. It was actually fun to do, okay, because, you know, you're it's kind like of flying through hoops. Well, it's right. like landing the shuttle. Right. Weird sort of way, because yeah, yeah. you're not touching the power till well they didn't have any power, <laughs> but you don't touch it till you're yeah. till you're going to touch down. And the A4, it was kind of funny. I don't know where it changed along the way. We used to fly 180 to 200, then it went to 160 to 180. I don't know who changed that, but it was fun to fly. You know the close beam ones, and you know just you know it's a challenge to make sure that you yeah. touch down in the right spot and. Get it right, because someday if it happens, you want to have that practice. So. Well, that's right. And uh, and when you're flying single engine, you know, there are all times that we, you know, saw something fluctuating going, oh, yeah. Okay, knock it off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm going home. How many traps did you end up with? About 310. Okay. Yeah. So I, um, uh, you know, in the old days, the decks were not going out as often sometimes, yeah. you know. Well, and you spent some time on staffs, it sounds like. But I you were did. still flying a lot on the staffs. So I that's did, good. yeah. All right, well, Jim Kidrick, call sign Slug. Uh, we always end with call sign stories, and uh, I, I could ask you, I suppose, to stand up for the cameras, but... Uh, maybe well, I'm 6'4". I walk short. You walk short? Yeah. I've not heard of that one. That's and uh, <laughs> it's, um, well, you know, we all get our call signs in weird ways. I was hoping, like, Wild Man or, you know, something like that. We're all, you know, something just a little bit more macho. But, uh, you know, being a young ensign... As somewhat I thought was, uh, you know, some elder lieutenant commander says, hey, you short little ugly guy, slug. And next thing you know, that's what I was. Well, better than the slough that you flew. Wasn't that what they called well, the A7? Well, they did some. But, you know, it's – I have to make a comment about the Corsair. It was – Corsair 2? Corsair 2. The technology in the airplane was wonderful. We could have all used a little bigger engine – but, you know, it was the first airplane that they put sidewinders on, the M61 Gatling gun, 
an array of air-to-ground ordnance, you know, yeah. from Rockeye to APAM to LGBs to, uh, what am I thinking of, the, um, walleye. the video guy, Did the Walleye, Walleye 2, the, you know, the ERDL version. It was pretty cool at that time to realize that you and I could go out together. I'm going to fly into the target, drop, turn away, and you're going to steer it into the target. Because, you know, the LGB and the, and the Walleye series were tremendously successful. You know, you weren't going to miss. If you got a, a good laze on it, you were going to, that bomb's going to hit. You know, there are some stories of, uh, especially walleyes, that had gone in the window. Okay, blew up the building inside, but the building was still standing, and they were going, you know, what happened? But it had worked. So it was, from that standpoint, it was a pretty great airplane, and the HUD was everything you would ever want a HUD to be. Most of us, by the way, flew it decluttered. You know, we just... Get rid of some of the symbology. But, you know, Lee Cargill wrote a book, okay? I forget the title of the book, but it's a great book. It talks about Vietnam. And until the A7 Echo showed up, ordnance delivery was not as accurate as it could have been. You know, it really changed it. Because if you had your forward-looking radar working right or whatever, I mean, it was a great bomber. Do you still do any flying today of any kind? I do some, do you? you know, with other people. General, okay. Yeah, but it's it's a time-distance heading problem for me because I'm still working full-time, and those are just the challenges of still working. And, you know, very candidly, I care about the, the museum today, but the museum of the future. All right, so hypothetical question. You could flip a switch and get all the knowledge you need to be current again. You go out to the flight line here at Bones' place, which he's got F5s, but imagine there's an A7 and an A4 sitting there. there. You can go goof around for an hour. What are you going to jump in? Wow. Probably the A4. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little scooter, right? It was. Yeah. It was. Heinemann's hot, hot rod. rod. Yeah. And so it was just kind of a fit. It wasn't very... You know, the technology in it was very basic. You know, 50s, it was. Right? Yeah. And, you know, so to drop bombs with it, you know, the aiming reticle and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I think the toughest thing I ever had to do, probably in an A4 though, was teach somebody to drop bombs and fly the pattern for them once or twice from the back seat. You know, trying to just say, God, I hope the aiming reticle is somewhere near the ground. <laughs> you know, not just near the bullseye, but near the. Yeah, yeah. You would have hated me as a student slug. I was awful. I could. There were so many things you had to do. You had to be on the right circle, right altitude, airspeed. Oh, you'd be able to pull a- the right. G- I a- was so bad. Absolutely, <laughs> 135 degrees. Rolling, oh my gosh! You know, blah, blah, the whole bit. And so, okay. So here's what I would tell you is the toughest thing for an aviator to do. So you're the instructor. You're in a two seat airplane, All right. and uh, you have um, briefed the mission. You uh, have pre flighted. You know you've got the student. 35, 40 minutes into the flight, and he or she does something that you think should be done a little bit differently. And you say those magic words, I've got the aircraft, let me show you how I think it should look. So now, you have not touched the stick. You're cold as cold can be. And you have to do it perfectly because you have one person that is watching you 15 to 18 inches from the instrument panel and the outside of the airplane. If you're going to demonstrate a barrel roll or, you know, whatever it may be, or you want to demonstrate what a GCA uh, pattern looks like. And I always thought that that's the time you've got to be on your game. And I believe that. Awesome. Well, Jim, you've been a lot of fun. I feel like we should come back to the museum. Any final thoughts, anything I didn't ask you, or what should people know if they're coming? And then we'll I think that they're going to have fun. And I think that they're going to spend 
longer there than they, than they anticipate. Yeah. Because this is true of events. It's a true of museum, you know, attractions. It doesn't matter what it may be. Is that people are on a clock. You know, if you said to your wife, hey, Beth, let's go, and you walk in, and, you know, you've allocated an hour, and all of a sudden you're realizing that it's not going to be an hour. you got to say, hey, Beth, it's not going to be an hour, and I'm really having a good time. She goes, well, my time is just okay. And so I think the visit, the guest experience is very worthwhile. Go in there, take your time, come back. Believe it or not, to become a member of the museum doesn't cost that much money. It's online, but it's not, you know, out of sight. Now, there is an Explorer Pass, you know, with Balboa Park. I think it's like $229 gets you two adults, four kids. Kids don't have to be yours. But okay? is that for, like, different museums? Yeah, so it There's gets you into all, all yeah, 16, yeah, yeah. you oh. know, that are there. Okay. So it's very worthwhile. But come to some of our events. Pay attention to us. And if you like aviation and space and some technology and some fun, I think you'll find that it's uh, very worthwhile. And uh, why aren't you down there as a volunteer when you're not flying? Are you kidding? You know how busy I am? i got this podcast. I, I, I just got... want to give you a hard time. Okay. <laughs> okay. I've got to say that to everybody, you know, because uh, our volunteers are wonderful. Uh, you know, we do an annual dinner for them. And I use this word. I said they're the very soul of who we are. So I would allocate time or do it in multiple visits. Don't rush yourself because if you do, you'll miss stuff and you'll be sorry you did. I think it's an extra five bucks if you want to go in the basement because normally you have to go down an elevator and all that kind of stuff. But the basement is well worth it. It's a world, you know, that if you like to work on cars or airplanes or whatever, you'll enjoy going down. It's the big shop with all the tooling and the people and everything. Oh, yeah. It's pretty great. And then you'll see that, that Hughes H1. You know, they just put the wing underneath it the other day because it's another airplane that's a combination of wood, primarily in the wing, and metal and fabric. It's amazing what they used to. It's not plastic. Jim, this has been a lot of fun, and thank you for taking the time to come share your experience with the San Diego Air and Space Museum. Really enjoyed it. Well, thanks for having us because I represent an awful lot of great people. This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation-themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.